0: As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews.
1: I guess there's two buttons he knows how to press. One is rallying up the right-wing base through appeals to racial fear. And the second button is the one that generates a Diet Coke in the Oval Office. (laughs) (laughs) The second one is not a campaign strategy.
0: You're not his greatest admirer still after (laughs) all these years of of looking at him closely. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I spoke in June of 2017 with Ben Wickler at MoveOn. It was a good interview and still worth checking out to learn about his very interesting path to his current job. I caught up with him again this week to hear about new developments in his life and with MoveOn and politics. I wanted to hear more about MoveOn's role in the policy battles of this cycle in the 2018 election and its aftermath and what they will be up to with the 2020 election, among other things that they're working on. And Ben doesn't disappoint. He has a lot to say about our politics, the coming changes in leadership at MoveOn, and other matters. So, after a quick word from our sponsor my update interview with Ben Wickler at MoveOn.
1: Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data
0: graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate,
1: the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a
0: discount. What took you to Wisconsin? Last I knew, you were like the D.C. representative for Move On or something. Yes. So I've been D.C. director for the last four plus years.
1: I grew up in Madison. Wisconsin is where my sort of political identity was forged. It's a place that I love. It's also where my mom and stepdad live. And I've always wanted to move back here eventually. What's new is that I now have three children, including an almost one-year-old baby, an almost four-year-old daughter, and a seven-year-old guy. And so this is the key moment for both for grandparent presence and assistance, and also like every year that we wait after now would make it a lot harder for the kids to adjust. So the opportunity presented itself, and I, and I took it. And it's so nice
0: to be home. Your mayor... Soglin? Yep. His brother was married to my sister. Really? Yes. This is a small
1: world. It is. He's been called mayor for life. He was elected mayor here when he was 23.
0: And keeps coming back.
1: Yep. He's up for reelection right now, actually, but this time he's got a six way primary.
0: Well, I've definitely gotten some emails from his campaign. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you still with Move On? What's happening?
1: Yep. So I'm obviously no longer the DC director. I'm now a senior advisor for MoveOn, and still deeply involved in our strategies and, and tactics around national political fights. Right now, first and foremost, that means the shutdown. But I was on a call this morning thinking about past and future Supreme Court battles, and we're already planning out our 2020 presidential and House and Senate and down-ballot strategies, and there are a million fights going on. So For the perpetual future, it's going to be an all-hands-on-deck moment.
0: I saw a note on Facebook that your two co-directors were stepping down. What's happening with the succession in that regard?
1: So Anne and Ilya have led MoveOn for the last six years. They are the co-executive directors, each one helming one of our two legal entities. And they both have young kids, and they decided, essentially— Either they should stay on through the 2020 election and then through the moment after that where we might have a window to win major progressive reforms if we take over unified control of the government, or they should hand off move on now at a moment when it's really the strongest it's ever been and give new leadership a chance to really get established in advance of that that moment of opportunity that we hope will come after the presidential election. So that's the direction they decided to go. But it's kind of a model of how to do nonprofit leadership succession responsibly, which is get the organization in a really strong state, make sure that the staff is humming, that fundraising is strong, that the organization is kind of positioned to make a big impact. And that means that you have the opportunity to recruit the best possible leaders for the next chapter. Very often, people leave those kinds of leadership posts when things are a disaster or they're forced out by the board or something like that. And that it's really bad for the health of movement organizations if that's how it goes. Whereas this puts on in a position where I think it, it could really hand the reins successfully and be poised to do more great
0: things in the next chapter. Sounds like you're not in the running for that job. I
1: love my work at MoveOn, but the role of executive director at MoveOn is something that I'd you know, love to see someone else fill. I, I don't feel like I'm throwing my hat in the ring. <laughs>
0: Do you have a sense of the timeline on that and who the contenders might be?
1: Anna and Elia's goal is to make the leadership transition happen this year and to transition out by the end of the year. So there'll be an open search. I'm sure there'll be internal and external candidates. And we'll have a, a great and kind of you know diverse and representative search committee that is looking at all the folks coming in and making sure we have a really great and diverse pool of, of potential applicants for it. I think the hire will happen when... Mm-hmm the right person is found and uh, everything clicks into place. But sometime over the next four to eight months would be my guess.
0: Who ends up making that kind of decision on the final ballot, sort of? We have a board with a number of great folks.
1: The standard function of a board is to sign off on the financials, hold the executive directors of an organization to account, hire a new executive director when needed. So this is a process done by the board, but we also have a search firm that's going to be working with us to build a list of applicants, and hire the person.
0: Kind of an exciting time for an organization to be entertaining top talent with new ideas. It really
1: is. It's such an exciting moment. It's such a disastrous, horrific moment for the country and such an exciting moment for the progressive movement because millions of people are pouring in who've never been engaged before, and millions more people who've been engaged throughout their whole lives are pouring themselves in, bringing everything they've got from their life experiences and experiences and organizing into the fight. And that ferment is generating new ideas and new leaders and new possibilities that, frankly, I don't think would have opened up under other circumstances. And I think the same way that Obama's election was made possible in a lot of ways by the disasters of the Bush years, we'll have to see, and it's never worth it to have the world economy implode and, and hundreds of thousands of people die in a needless war. I guess the silver lining that you find in the, in the cloud is the resurgent progressive movement when the right leads the country off
0: the cliff the depression brought us franklin roosevelt.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean it's it's always like that, right? I mean it's worth bearing in mind that so often progressive activity can lead to a backlash from the right. Although I have to say Eisenhower as the <laughs> the like post new deal backlash not not so bad.
0: <laughs> he looks better and better, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, he really does. Let's hope we, the next president is super progressive, super effective, we win a huge huge number of fights and then the right comes back with a kind of like Steady as you goes moderate the next time they get in power as opposed to a, a Trumpy, I don't know what to call him, monarchist, fascist?
0: <laughs> He's certainly uh, not in the mold, let's just say. Not in the mold of a, a normal Republican. Yeah. So I guess I last talked to you June fifth, twenty seventeen. That's a long time ago in political time.
1: <laughs> Especially in the Trump era.
0: <laughs> yes. What were the main highlights for move on? during that stretch, and how much did you grow? What were your big fights? June of
1: 2017 was right in the middle of the fight against ACA repeal. That still sticks out to me as one of the most extraordinary battles in modern politics. That call would have been right around the time of that protest by ADAPT, the, the disability rights activists who went to Mitch McConnell's office in wheelchairs and refused to leave and were dragged out by police. That was a moment that just really, I think, ignited fury across the country about what Republicans were trying to do and put a face to the, the impact of the right-wing bills. It was a pitched battle continuously from then until the end of July. And during that time, Move On was part of and, and helped drive an unprecedented uprising across the country with thousands of protests and events, these town halls, Indivisible led the way in a lot of those as well where Republicans were hiding from their constituents. And so people organized their own town halls and yelled at the cardboard cutouts of their Republican representatives. <laughs> uh, die-ins outside of congressional offices. I worked closely with the Little Lobbyists, which is this amazing group of families with kids with complex medical needs.
0: I interviewed one of their leaders. Quite moving.
1: Really powerful. And they, they came into existence, I think it was in June of that year. Like immediately, caught fire, came to the Hill over and over and over and over, organized families all across the country to to get in touch with their senators. And, you know, I talked to staffers in the Senate who were moved to tears by talking to these families. It drove home so powerfully what what it would mean if you destroyed Medicaid and stripped away ACA protections for human beings. And it was a fight that both reached beneath politics to connect to people at the heart level and also directly into politics to convey – the power in this that it was thre- it was going to threaten the political careers of Republicans who voted the wrong way, and of course, fast-forwarding eighteen months, it did threaten their careers. It ended so many Republicans' political careers that they were part of this just horrendously malign effort to hurt people through policy, and justly so. So that's the first thing I would <laughs> that comes to mind. Move on strategy for the Trump era for the first two years. Our shorthand for it internally was resist and win. Resist, meaning try to contain the damage of all the horrible things the right was doing, and then win at the ballot box. And through special election after special election, it was after that that we had the Virginia special election. We had Doug Jones. We had Connor Lamb. We had the Wisconsin Supreme Court race and Wisconsin State Senate race with big upsets in those two places. So all of those things were happening during this time. And then leading up to this crescendo for the 2018 midterms and move mounted to the the biggest electoral effort, I think, in in our history – and that was happening concurrently with first the healthcare fight, the tax fight, the family separation fight, the DACA and immigration fight, the March for Our Lives moment, and then the Kavanaugh fight in the in the fall. We had to resist and win where the walking and chewing gum of of 2017 to 2018. We had to do both.
0: How did that feel for you along the way? I mean, that's right in the middle of really pivotal policy battles for the country. It was
1: an emotional roller coaster. I'd sort of alternate between just feeling so beaten down by what our government and our fellow people in this country were willing to do, and then that would flip to fury, and then that would flip to just the energy and joy and gratitude and inspiration and love that came from working in fellowship with so many millions of people who wanted something better. That's where I drew strength, is from seeing these movements around me I'm a white guy, like very privileged, and a lot of these policies were unlikely to take away my legal status in this country or my uh, ability to access Medicaid. At the moment, I'm I'm lucky to have a job with great health insurance benefits and move on. But they do shape the country that I'm in. So often, you know, these movements were led by the people who are right at the forefront, who are most at risk by these policies. And working with Dreamers, for example, in the DACA fight, if they could get up and bring such extraordinary joy and heart and vulnerability to those battles, the rest of us have no excuse. It's been one of the great joys of my life to be able to work with movements that I find so profoundly inspiring and to also be part of strategy conversations where people are really getting down to brass tacks and figuring out how to fight to to either contain damage or even turn something into the potential for a win. That's been great. And then we'd lose the fight on Kavanaugh. Or we'd lose the fight on the tax bill. And both of those things are these kind of like time bombs where we create this giant deficit that you just know Republicans are going to come back and use as a hammer to block social insurance legislation down the road. And with Kavanaugh, it's like we just buried all these landmines across the countryside, and those will explode when he issues his rulings. So there's, there is a sense of foreboding and dread that in a lot of ways – The full damage of the Trump era will only unfold over the coming years and decades because of the consequences of the things he's putting in place.
0: That's absolutely right. It's really amazing to see a federal government led by someone so impervious to the trials and tribulations of average people, even one that purported to be fighting for them. It is. One thing that's striking is how the Trump
1: administration doesn't even look after its own people, its own supporters. It's the interests of its base, exactly. They're like the actual lives of the kind of core Trump voters are made worse by so many of his policies. I think the painful truth is that Trump views his service to his supporters as hurting the people they don't like rather than helping them. Look at their midterm strategy. They'd passed their tax bill. They'd gotten their judges confirmed. But what they ran on was hardcore racism and xenophobia, the campaign was all about the caravan fear. and people coming. It was fear. It was people coming to, to kill you and your family the way they told it. Uh, that had nothing to do with the fact that it was actually people fleeing whose own families were at risk. It's both wrenching, but it's also it's traditional for Republicans. It's the same campaign that George W. Bush ran in 2002 and 2004 to a T. The subject of the threat is, is slightly different, but that is their playbook. That's how they believe that they win elections which is why it was so gratifying that they lost so big in in 2018. I think it's incumbent on us not to just be shocked by it, but also to view it analytically as a strategy that they pursue that we need to counter intentionally rather than just be outraged by.
0: It's so cynical as a strategy. It's so highly deliberate. I don't think anyone believes that he really is worried about a caravan coming from Mexico. Stop talking about it the day after the election.
1: There are like two groups that Trump is afraid of. One of them is Putin, and the other one is the kind of Ann Coulter, hard-right, white nationalist base in his party. And we've seen time and time again that he can be kind of manipulated and swayed by people's advice to move towards thinking about doing something reasonable. But the second the kind of Ann Coulters of the world speak up, he snaps right back into place in the lockstep with the, the worst elements of his party. I do think that he kind of knows in his gut that if they abandon him, he's going to sink like a stone. That's why Democrats can't trust any negotiation with him because the Steve Kings of the world will just pull the choke chain and he'll come panting back to their side. His behavior, I think, when you view it through the lens of what are his incentives, like what are his strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, it's easier to make sense of. It's actually a lot less random than than it often seems, tweets aside.
0: What do you think of the shutdown politics right now? You mentioned that as something that is top of of mind for you, obviously for the country. I mean, first of all, what a
1: tragedy and what a disaster for hundreds of thousands of direct employees and their families and contractors. It's literally millions of people and all the businesses and different organizations that serve them and the people who receive the services that they provide. It's horrible and, and pretty disgusting that the right is doing this. And the whole thing is based on extortion over this both racist and offensive and needless and expensive wall, which we shouldn't grant. I think that the broader context of it is that for Trump, this is demonstrating to his base how far he's willing to go to prove his xenophobia at an even deeper level. His toughness. His toughness, exactly. At a deeper level, it's fundamentally a dominance play. For Trump, this is about dominating Nancy Pelosi and proving that he is not going to be bossed around by anyone, especially not a woman, that he's the strongest guy there is. And for Democrats, that dynamic means that it is is vital that they not break. Because if they do break, Trump is going to walk all over them. He's going to use this kind of shutdown threat and these kinds of extreme tactics for everything he wants to do. And that makes this a really difficult situation. To me, there's really just one path to winning, which is Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell's strategy is to be as absent as possible. And then finally, according to the reporting, he concluded that Democrats were not going to break. And so he convinced Trump to issue this counteroffer, which is this like ridiculous and terrible bill that they proposed, which would basically prevent unaccompanied minors from being able to apply for asylum when they get to the border even if they're fleeing for their lives and absolutely qualify that's the the poison pill in his bill but he came up with this bill out of a position of weakness because he knew that his position was untenable and the fact is that as long as the as Trump's approval ratings are falling and Senate Republicans are starting to feel more and more at risk their majority could be at risk and Mitch McConnell's own seat could be at risk that's not going to happen from a 2 week shutdown or even a 3 week shutdown but if they're looking at a four-month, five-month shutdown with really serious harm and stories of that harm spreading across the country, I think that Senate Republicans are going to buckle and demand a way out of this mess and, and strike some deal with Democrats. And the fact is that they could override a Trump veto anytime they decide to, even by passing the bill they did before. And Trump
0: knows that. With just half of them, they could. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly. Yep. Yeah, you could do, a bunch of them could defect and they'd still be able to do it. And Trump knows that, which means that McConnell has all the cards here. And the second he wants to snap his fingers and end this madness, he can do it. And he'll come up with a messaging plan with Trump where they save whatever shred of their dignity and they walk away. So, so pressure, maximal pressure on Senate Republicans to me is the only real path out of this mess.
0: And the disaster that goes in the opposite direction is if Trump's approval rating doesn't keep dropping and somehow the messaging pulls Democrats down too, that's, that's where we can't let that happen, Right. That's right. That's why blame needs to stay squarely heaped on,
1: you know, Trump and Senate Republicans. McConnell's strategy is having this proposal and making it look like Democrats aren't willing to negotiate. And I've been tracking like local newspapers around the country. It seems like he had some success with that over the weekend, which is unfortunate. I think Democrats could use better messaging than non-starter to describe the Republicans' bad faith bill. But the key challenge now is to demonstrate the grassroots outrage directed at the president and at the Republicans around this. For that reason, there are a number of efforts underway now to organize the kinds of protests that I think pundits have started wondering why they're not there. They're going to be there um, over the next few weeks, and I think it's something for, for everyone to take part in. Because as long as the, the public understands who's to blame for this thing, as long as people are seeing on repeat the clip of Trump saying he's going to shut down the government and take pride in, in doing so, this really just hurts Trump. And the public doesn't actually like hostage taking as a as a negotiating strategy. This could hurt him more and more, especially as people feel it in their real lives.
0: Talk a little about how MoveOn fights that kind of ongoing battle. So you've mentioned you're gonna organize some protests, but there's also that larger messaging fight. How do you fit into that? So
1: there's a bunch of pieces. I think the way when you're fighting a fight like this, you you gotta put yourself in the shoes of your target, which is in this case of Republican senators like Cory Gardner and centrally Mitch McConnell, and think about all the things that they see and hear in the course of their days. And you try to affect those to create the world in which they have to make the decision you want them to make. So one piece of that is, what are they hearing from their constituents? And we know that Trump directly appealed on national television to (laughs) his voters to call Congress and tell them to reopen the government. So we've made a big push to make sure that we can drown out the, the volume of calls from the right. We've driven more than, I think, 55,000 calls over the last couple of weeks to Senate Republicans. And that's a, a very high volume. They're noticing their phones ringing off the hook. and That's a piece of the equation that's important. The second thing is, in D.C., what are they seeing here when they're wandering around the halls of Congress? Our friends at the American Federation of Government Employees are organizing a, a huge protest in the Hart Senate office building tomorrow, uh, which I'll be you know amplifying. We'll be amplifying through social media channels. The... Third thing is just interacting with national reporters, and there's reporters and editors that make decisions day to day about how to cover this. And often that what that means for someone in in my shoes is you know just texting back and forth and pointing things out that people might not have seen and explaining how our side sees it. If you don't do that, then whoever's voices are loudest will end up carrying the day. So that's been a, a piece, especially over the last few days, to try to push back against the Republican frame that Democrats aren't negotiating. The biggest thing, we're in such a visual age, is helping generate visuals and imagery that people can understand. So mass protest is one way to do that. Videos with people who are directly affected telling their stories is another way to do that. Buying ads with powerful graphics and images is another thing that we're looking at. Ultimately, you win through, A, local media covering local activity by local people, and that's where mass-distributed protests play a big role. And then, B iconic individual stories that can capture the imagination of the public and introduce new characters into the drama who are directly affected by this. And I think that last piece is the one that hasn't quite clicked yet, but I think the sort of search is on right now for who, who can become the face of the shutdown in a way that will be comprehensible to the public and create a kind of antagonist for Trump, who's not an elected official. And you can, you know, little lobbyist, I think, were an example of a group that played that role in the healthcare fight, and ADAPT activist. I don't yet know who that's going to be for the shutdown fight, but I think that does play a big role in, in creating
0: the storyline that the right will then have to deal with. Do you think the only way is to force McConnell or and or Trump to buckle, or is there any road to a, some national reporters have talked about, like, Trump could go big on immigration seems out of character, and in contrary to what you're talking about to some of his fears on the right, but... Some compromise that that isn't temporary DACA fix, but is a more of a grand bargain on this. And would we want that? If Trump wanted
1: to, you know, pass the actual Dream Act and reinstate for real lock, uh, TPS protections, great. But we know the xenophobic right has a choke chain around his neck that they can yank at any time. Stephen Miller still works for him. This is a president who simply cannot
0: let himself step away from the... And he's pretty centrally tied to this as part of his, one of the few things that really is his character, I guess. So it's hard to imagine. Something
1: Matt Iglesias has pointed out is that for Trump, he really wants the wall. He's all about the wall. He's built his brand on the wall. But for the actual dyed-in-the-wool, you know, anti-immigrant element in the Republican Party, they know that the wall is BS, and what they really want is mass deportations and slashing legal immigration and destroying the asylum process. And they're not willing to give up those things in order to get the wall. And they are the base that he needs to keep happy. So he actually does not have the negotiating room to give up on all those really bad things in order to get his wall – because the constituency's trying to, <laughs> to please would go on cable news, would go on Fox News specifically and torch him. And right wing radio would accuse him of mass amnesty and he would like his approval rating would drop in half in a week. The people who support him now are the people who like those far right policies. I would love to be proved wrong on this, but I think it's a total fantasy to imagine that he would buck his base in order to get his wall, because the wall is just a symbol of that larger iceberg of really nasty anti-immigrant policies. I think that the path out of this is likely to be something small or something with emergency powers, some kind of climb down, much more likely than a grand bargain. Again, I'd be thrilled to be incorrect, but we have a whole lot of evidence so far, including a previous shutdown battle where he tried to strike the grand bargain and then it was vetoed by Stephen Miller and John Kelly and those folks from the right. It's hard to imagine this turns out differently.
0: Well, it seems like a lot of his thinking is motivated by the 2020 campaign and the notion that he made a bunch of promises and kept a bunch of those promises and that one of them was the wall and that's why he's gotta get that in place so that he can yell about it at the rallies. Of course, he can say, I need a second term to get the wall if he doesn't get it. The one thing that might modulate any president would be, I need to run towards the middle a little For a general election, it doesn't seem like his mode, but it might be a way to pull him into a bargain, right? With a normal
1: president, I think that logic would be really compelling. But every move that he's made since the midterm suggests that his whole goal is to double down on conflict and and rally up his right-wing base. And that's really the only button that he knows how to press. I guess there's two buttons he knows how to press. One is rallying up the right-wing base through appeals to racial fear, and the second button is the one that generates a Diet Coke in the Oval Office. <laughs> the second one is not a campaign strategy.
0: You're not his greatest admirer still after all <laughs> these years of, of looking at him closely. <laughs>
1: I, I mean, a lot of times people try to puzzle through political fights by thinking to themselves, what would I do if I were in this situation? And what you or I would do and what most journalists would do and most reasonable people would do is you know look for the win-win where you get what you want and the other side gets what they want. And a kind of wall for dream deal seems like the obvious thing in that context. Uh, If our side would be willing to accept a, a wall, but Trump doesn't think about things the way that you and I do. He, his whole view is win lose. It's about power and domination and about beating down the other side. And so it's hard to imagine doing something where Pelosi comes out as a great victor for getting so many things her side wanted in exchange for the wall and the government gets reopened, like that for him would be lost because the other side would have something to to feel proud of. And so I just don't think that set of options is realistically on the table, even though, you know, for any, any reasonable person, that's clearly the way out of this.
0: For a sequence of presidential elections, MoveOn has been an important player in the Democratic primary and has conducted its own surveys and made endorsements and played a role. How are you folks thinking about this one with this huge slate of good Democrats running and what's the plan there? So move
1: on members across the country and their millions are are thrilled that there's going to be a big, exciting, diverse, progressive field. And there will be other candidates as well. But there's a whole bunch of candidates who are really compelling. And we've already seen big new ideas from the baby bonds idea from Cory Booker to job guarantees to Elizabeth Warren's anti-corruption ideas. I mean, so many different big ideas on the table in a way that just wouldn't happen without a real contested primary, certainly not this early in the, in the fight. And those ideas are going to be litigated in big public debates over two years so that once, once Democrats retake power, if we do, if we fight hard and win, we'll actually have a, a mandate and, you know, and victorious propositions ready to roll. So that is great. Move on role in this. Ultimately, we on the staff serve our membership across the country. And so unlike many groups, we endorse presidential candidates based on votes by our membership. And that means that for move on to endorse in the 2020 race will require someone getting to the point where they have broad support. Or Historically, we've done 50% plus one of our membership in a multi-candidate field needs to vote for, for an endorsement for someone. For example, in 2004, we held a big endorsement vote And Howard Dean won it, but he won with 43%. So we didn't endorse in the primary. We didn't endorse until John Kerry was in the general. It's an open question whether someone is going to get to that point. Maybe it'll happen early. Maybe it'll happen once the field is winnowed down to two or three or four people. But in the meantime, we're not going to be sitting on our hands. What we're working on right now and talking to campaigns about is a kind of robust program to work with the whole field of presidential candidates to elevate big ideas and to put those in front of move on members in front of the country not just as talking points but really dig in and talking about what the ideas are how they would be implemented who they'd affect try to put that front and center again with a view towards getting to a point where we actually have a, a governing majority and then can put those into effect i think when we look at the 2008 presidential race the debate over healthcare mm-hmm. is such a great illustration you know john edwards started putting front and center the idea that we needed to get to universal health care. Obama and Clinton then had to come up with their own proposals. Clinton suggested a setup like the ACA with an individual mandate, which Obama originally ran against. But because the idea was debated and sorted through, when he came into office, he was determined for many reasons, both political and personal, to fight for a health care bill. And then he could pull elements from the great ideas that Edwards and Clinton put forward to bake into the ACA. There's lots of things I... Wish the ACA had that, that it didn't, but his initial, his campaign proposals were not as progressive as the ACA turned out to be. And that process of really debating a, a big proposal on the national stage is what led to millions of people having health care today. And so we'd like to see that dynamic play out across all the major challenges that we face as a country, from climate change to racial justice to immigration to wage and, and wealth inequality. I we think there's a great opportunity to do that.
0: Ideas are a crucial and important part of a presidential campaign, but character and personality and leadership skills and other elements of the human being in question are also important. How do you think about that element of the contrast that we need to have with the fellow in the White House? I mean, nothing speaks
1: to the significance of character in leadership more than the Trump administration. I think it's been a useful reminder to progressives about the importance of that. We had eight years of an Obama presidency of just someone with the most unimpeachable character you can imagine. And I think it sort of lulled us into a national complacency about how bad it can be when you go in the other direction. I think that's gone. The question of litigating character and also looking for people who can unite and and energize a movement, all those things are certainly going to be played out in the course of the primary but I think organizationally, that's likely to happen kind of with or without the intervention of particular groups. There's going to be a million reporters on the case. I actually think one thing that it will be important for organizations and activists to do is let the media know if they're falling for Republican character assassination tricks. We have so much experience, you know, gore being accused of being a liar and a flip-flopper based on a series of fabrications from the right, John Kerry's patriotism and military service being called into question, the birther xenophobic and and racist attacks on Obama, of which there were so many in 2008 and 2012, and then what we saw with uh, Hillary Clinton's emails, the right has this predilection for falling into these deep and profoundly damaging rabbit holes driven by right-wing activists, to character assassinate Democrats. And some of that is beyond our control or influence, but I really think it's worth attention and focus to push back against narratives that are distorting and damaging. And we know that that is the GOP playbook, um, that they'll be trying to torch whoever the Democrat is on a personal level, in part because progressive ideas about policy are so popular. That's one area of the character-narrative battle that we will collectively have a role to play in. And Let's aim to nominate somebody who has great character so that debunking attacks is an exercise in truth, telling, and righteousness.
0: I'm really kind of looking forward to the primary and don't myself have a preferred candidate yet. I have a lot of candidates I like and kind of want to see how it plays out. As we go through this, there's always the risk that we damage each other. I already see some of that in the social media world. Do you worry about that or do you just feel that it's all upside? The painful truth of primaries is
1: that they can get really nasty and and really toxic. And I think that that is a danger that is amplified by especially Twitter and, and I guess Facebook and the way social media kind of smashes out of context interactions and narratives against each other. It's a real thing. I would love if <laughs> you know everyone who's looking at or thinking about the Democratic primary could make a, a vow to take ten deep breaths before they post anything. I'm sure there will be pylons that are dreadfully unfair. Bad feelings will come out of those, and I think we collectively, it's just incumbent on us to find ways to step back and modulate our tone and energy and think deeply about who we want to be as, as participants in these debates, and then ultimately find a nominee we can be proud of and come together around her or him to fight to save the country. The one thing that's on our side is the stakes are so vivid. That can help focus the mind. I think we really saw that in the fight against all the fights I just mentioned, actually, but especially ACA repeal. And then again with taxes and dreams and guns and Kavanaugh and family separation, like those things really drive home to all of us what's at stake here. My hope is that even in this very long primary season, where we'll be seeing additional constant horrors from the Trump administration, I'm sure that we can keep our wits about us, about being thoughtful and strategic in how we we interact, especially how we interact out there in public, so that once we get to October, November 2020, we are all one team fighting with one goal, and we make it happen.
0: And some of those pylons might be amplified by Russian or other intervention like last time. Oh, absolutely. Do you guys keep your your eye on that sort of stuff? We do. I mean, I
1: have to say, people talk about Russian bots. I think it's more when Russians are involved, it's more often not bots, but actual humans that are doing strategic things. But also, there's a whole apparatus of right-wing trolls that are homegrown right here in the U.S. of A that pull all these shenanigans
0: they come into our primary to mess things up. Absolutely, as well.
1: I yep. mean it's as old as Nixon and much older than that. The original kind of sin crime of Watergate was how Nixon destroyed the Muskie primary campaign and got to run against McGovern because he sabotaged the the Democratic primary process. Trump, I'm sure, will be looking for every opportunity to do that, and I think we've we've already basically found enough of a paper trail to be confident that that there was collusion with between the Trump campaign and and the russian folks but of course what that really reveals is that team trump was so unscrupulous and so heedless and also probably convinced that they were going to lose that they would do anything totally outside the lines to go after clinton and they're going to do the same thing to the primary field this time and they have millions of supporters who i think most trump voters probably aren't this way but there are millions of people on the right who will stop at nothing to heedless of lines that would give pause to, to most of us, we'll stop at nothing to go after the democratic field. And so we invest a lot in cybersecurity. We invest a lot in tracking potential threats and dangers to this stuff. And I hope everyone on our side is using two-factor authentication for their email, for example, for the next cycle. Um, and there'll be threats we haven't even thought of yet. One moment that really <laughs> is like such a small thing, but I think about it every so often, that illustrated you know that there are really bad faith actors involved in in these fights was during the Families Belong Together protests. We were using the hashtag Families Belong Together. And someone out there, some network of folks, and I think there was an analysis that found Russia-linked bots were very involved, But who knows if they were the originators. They did what's called a decoy attack, hashtag decoy attack, where they pumped out tons and tons of automated tweets using hashtags that were slightly different than Families Belong Together, like misspellings, you know, they'd leave out an I... Or they'd add a letter here or there. So there were like 100 different variants of the main hashtag going on. And those were being retweeted so much that none of the hashtags started trending. And if you tried to use the hashtag families belong together in a tweet, you'd be auto-suggested a whole bunch of incorrectly spelled versions of it. So people's tweets got diverted into other typo versions, and none of them caught fire. How trivial and stupid is it to hijack a hashtag How ugly is it to do it on that topic, and that fight, when kids were being ripped away from their parents? And yet, someone out there with a big bot network decided it was worth the time to sabotage the online organizing around that moment. And if they were willing to do that for that fight, all bets are off for what they're going to do for the presidential.
0: It is a bizarre way (laughs) that politics is getting fought in that arena right now. It, It eludes me as a legitimate form of expression really when it gets like crazy like that you just have to like
1: track what those tactics are and figure out mitigation strategies and circumvention strategies and drive forward it's easy to get mesmerized by like obscure and and vicious tactics that the right is using and the best counter to that kind of nastiness is to do better stuff ourselves
0: we've talked about national policy and national politics. Can you just say just a little bit about what MoveOn on is doing in the local state, et cetera, world? MoveOn on is a big national community
1: with millions of people and we have members in every single county in the United States of America. Our staff, we have about sixty staff right now, there's no way that we could possibly drill into all of the fights that are happening all over the country. And for the first few years of MoveOn's existence, That meant that MoveOn rarely got involved in state and local fights unless someone on the team found a a way to hook in and organize people nationally around it. Then we realized that we could set up a tool that would harness the kind of wisdom and energy of our members to fight those battles. So we have a platform where any MoveOn member, which is just someone who's registered with our system, can start a petition on our website. And unlike most, or any as far as I know, other petition sites, we then send it out to members in the area where that petition was generated and ask whether they support it and whether MoveOn should get behind it. And there's an iterative process where petitions kind of bubble up based on these kind of rapid polls of other MoveOn members. And through that, there's tons and tons of different petitions going on across the country at any given moment. And those can then turn into sort of full-fledged campaigns where when you start a petition on the site and people sign it, you then have the ability to send the people who sign your petition a message so you can organize a protest or you can organize a call-in campaign. And we have a, a platform team that works with the petition creators on the platform to, to drive those forward. So I actually couldn't tell you right now what all the local fights are that, that MoveOn members are engaged in advancing. But our toolkit facilitates dozens of those fights every week to start moving. And then uh, sometimes those turn into big statewide or national battles where our staff can can come in and help bring additional resources into the, into the fight alongside the self-organizing and move-on members. One that I'm quite aware of right now here in Wisconsin is something that's playing out in a few places. There's now a governor that's committed to expanding Medicaid. And there's a bunch of places around the country where ballot initiatives went through to expand Medicaid or governors or state legislatures were flipped and what we know is that the right even when they lose at the ballot box they fight every step of the way to prevent people from getting health insurance and so all of those are going to be fights that have to be waged step by step by step and i'm excited as uh as i move on person to throw my shoulder into the fight as well
0: that sounds like a, a really neat platform what should i have asked you that i failed to
1: that was a great interview <laughs> you asked me a lot of really good questions I mean, the one thing that I'm thinking about a lot is what should happen if Democrats win Unified Control, what should happen after 2020? So we could take a second on that.
0: Well, and I assume that there are some of our think tanks and other policy nonprofits and organizations that are hard at work on that. That's right. And I think it's a pretty big jump to hope that we'll get all those things, but it could well happen. If it does, it's more likely it's because. In my view, we got, we got a recession out of these policies, trade war and shutdown and so on, and, and just the length of the expansion we've had. But I would imagine that, that there could be a wrench thrown into some of the most ambitious progressive policies by economic trouble, but hard to look out two years, I guess. But certainly, we should have a lot of things in place, like the uh, political reforms that were the first bill in the House. Exactly. So like there's this,
1: the democratic theory of politics has generally been pass laws that help people and that people will remember who passed the law and who helped them and then they'll vote to keep you in office. And that was kind of the New Deal theory that worked pretty well for a long time after the New Deal. And the Republican strategy became two part. One is destroy those benefits, water them down, fight against them, shred them once they're in power so that Democrats won't have that benefit. And part two is rig the rules to thwart democracy and make sure people cannot vote, that their votes don't lead to the election of the people that they want, that if the people there are elected who they want, that they can't pass laws. If they can pass laws, that they're blocked in court. Block democracy every step of the way so that Democrats won't be able to deliver meaningful improvement in people's lives and so Republicans can hold on to power even though the policy positions that they espouse are hideously unpopular. And that means that it's time for a new strategy for Democrats when they come into power that the first step and first priority has to be to unrig the system, has to be to change the rules of democracy so that we have a government that can actually do what people want. If we get into a position where we can actually pass bills in 2021, there's a growing, I think, strain of thought in the progressive movement that the priority number one has to be to unrig the system and fix our democracy across so many dimensions from Reforming the court system, to reforming voting rights, voter protections, and voter registration—everything around the electorate—to immigration reform, to thinking about Senate rules and how reconciliation works—in all these different fronts, we need to undo the damage that Republicans have done quietly and consistently over the last forty odd years, so that we can actually have government by and for the people. Building a grassroots mandate for that that can then help generate a real sense that that's possible and necessary in our elected officials is, I think, a third theme of the next two years. It's not enough just to resist, and it's not enough just to win elections. We also have to build a consensus on our side that it's time to change the system, not just use the system to get the measly outcomes that we can get through it.
0: Well, I hope that we get ourselves in that position, and I really appreciate the work that you've been doing to stave off bad and work for good. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much.
0: I appreciate it and thanks
1: for all you're doing with this podcast and all your other work. I'm enjoying it.
0: That was Ben Wickler with Move On. He's at moveon.org. Move On continues to step up to the challenge of Trump and I'm glad they are in our corner. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.